Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Right, this is it. Welcome along. It's a brand new episode of Writer's Routine. Thank you so much for joining us. This is where we take a look through the daily life and the working day of a successful published author. Today we're chatting to the crime writer Liz Nugent. She published her first novel, Unraveling Oliver, back in 2014. It became a number one bestseller. It won the Crime Fiction Prize at the Irish Book Awards. And then she did it all over again with her second novel. Now, we talk mostly about her newest book. It's called Skin Deep and all about the song that inspired uh, the start of her story. Also, we find out how she's finally decided to redesign her office to give her the perfect space to write in. And we chat about why the start of your story is always the easiest place to give it all up. And you could actually just rewrite the first 30,000 words for the rest of your life. And it seems to be a common stumbling block, you know, talking to other writers. A lot of them say that the 30,000 word mark is a really tough one to get through. But I think what you have to do is keep going. Keep going through it, work through it, keep going forward. You can find out exactly how to keep on going in just a sec. She's got some brilliant advice. Stay there. Liz Nugent is on the way. Yes, hello. Thank you so much for giving Writer's Routine a download and a listen or a play or however you are hearing uh, (laughs) the nonsense that we're speaking right now. Uh, My name is Dan Simpson. Yes, uh, before we get stuck into the schedule of Liz's story today, I want to say and remind you, this is the last chance that you've got to take advantage of the amazing offer that we've got with our friends over at Scrivener. It's a writing software. It's been recommended to me by tons of authors on the show uh, and interviews that I've done in the last year or so. So I'm passing that advice and that recommendation on to you. Scrivener, it'll make your working day just so much easier because it's designed by a writer to help out other writers. It takes all the best parts of writing softwares that are out there and it sucks them all in and it dumps them all in one place to make it much better for you it gives you everything that you need to start a novel except the story itself but the writing of it it's all covered in Scrivener like when you get the idea when you know what it is you want but when you're stuck when you can't figure out how to get it down how to plot how to plan Scrivener is the place that you need to go it helps you plan it it helps you shape it in the best way like when you open it up uh, you're faced with a corkboard it's there in front of you, kind of like the one you might have in, in your office, wherever you write right now. Now, I know that usually writers are focused on, on word count. I'm not sure about you, though. I think that using a standard word processor, you tend to get obsessed by the actual page that's in front of you. That blank white thing staring from the screen. Well, Scrivener stops that because each chapter or scene that you're making it exists separately and then you link all of them together at the end. 
and you can thread every idea, every storyline that you've made all in one novel. You'll never be scared by looking at that blank page again. It'll help your working day out so much. It'll also help out this show. So if you've enjoyed listening to Writer's Routine, if you're loving what we're doing, uh, it's also a great way of helping us out. Because Scrivener, they're supporting the show for the rest of November. So head over to their website. It's literatureandlatte.com. You can download the free trial, have a quick play. Then when you're ready to buy, use our code ROUTINE, R-O-U-T-I-N-E, and you'll get 20% off Scrivener over at literatureandlatte.com. This week's guest on Writer's Routine is Liz Nugent. Her new novel is called Skin Deep, just been published in the UK. It's her third, and it tells the story of Cordelia Russell, the extravagant, gregarious socialite who may be covering something up. I mean, it's a crime novel, so you can bet all your money that she probably is. You can find out how Liz got the initial idea for the story in Just a Sec and and how she worked out what her ending was and why she needs characters to be crystal clear before she starts writing. We also chat quite a bit about her first two novels, Unravelling Oliver and Lying in Wait, both won Irish Book Awards. And we talk about how hard it is to start your second book when you're contracted to do so, but you've ploughed every single idea that you've got into the first story. And also you can find out why she can't stand a desk. We'll get a top writing tip as well that may change the way you work forever. It's from an author who has the completely unenviable task of trying to write like P.G. Woodhouse. That's on the way. And also stick around. There's a chance that you can win $2,000 worth of book marketing for your story. That's up after we chat to Liz Nugent. And we start, as always, with more about the place where she sits down to write. Um, I see my kitchen window. The kettle is immediately to my left, which uh, gives me an endless supply of tea. I am an unusual writer in that I don't drink coffee or like cats. <laughs> <laughs> so um, in my eyeline, uh, I don't have plants or anything. There's just the kitchen window. The kitchen table is to my right, but I actually sit in an armchair. And I write in an armchair in my kitchen, although that is shortly to change because I'm having my house renovated. And I'm finally, after three books, have it getting an office of my own. Right. OK, so yeah. talk to me about the armchair then. What, what's the state of it? Are you working on a laptop while you yeah, sat in I'm there? I'm working on a laptop on my knee. I don't write at a desk. I never have. I never have. I'm not... Um, I was just more comfortable. And everybody says it's going to kill my back. But so far, I have physical problems anyway with my right leg. And uh, so I have never had back pain. Um, I think you're the first author that I've chatted to who's in the process of, of building yeah. to spec. What else needs to be in it then for you to help jog ideas, to help you get your day done? Well, uh, I don't really believe in kind of aphorisms and framed, you know little sayings on the wall and stuff. Just, uh, I'd just be surrounded by, by my books, my printer, my laptop. There won't be a lot in it. I'd like to keep it clean and spare. I mean, there will be not a desk as such, but there will be like a built-in um, platform, I suppose, like a table, but it's kind of built in into like a corner of the chimney breast. You know, the chimney breast sticks out into the room and then on either side of it, there will be uh, a ledge that will uh, hold the printer and everything. And then the rest will all be bookshelves. So what's with the aversion to desks then? I don't know. I don't know. I don't, it just reminds me too much of my miserable time working in an office. 
I really hated working in an office when I did it. So I used to work, you see, for 15 years, I worked in theatre as a stage manager and I never had a desk. I was always running around, you know, propping shows or in the rehearsal room or, you know, talking to actors and directors or sitting side of stage. But I would never sat at a desk, per se. And then I worked on a soap opera, a TV soap opera for 10 years at a desk. And I just I felt shackled to that desk. It just felt like a, a prison sentence. The podcast is called Writer's Routine. So okay. tell me about yours yet. Then the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day when you are writing, leave no what you might perceive as a, a, a tedious stone unturned. It is probably all useful to us. OK, get up downstairs. I get up, brush my teeth. Um, I shower much later in the day, but I get up, I brush my teeth and then I go downstairs, um, make the tea check my Facebook, check my Twitter, do my emails. Um, so I don't really get down to work I'm, and I don't really get up until about nine, half nine. So I don't really get to work until about 12. And then my best writing time is between sort of 12 and three or 12 and four, like four hours of concentrated writing time. And, you know, that sounds like a very short working day, but Aside from that, there's a lot of admin stuff that is done before and after. Um, and I do try to keep up with social media because it's the best way I have of of being in touch with readers. And I love interacting with readers. I love hearing from them, you know, even if they don't have great things to say. But uh, it's it's really good to sort of keep in touch that way. So I enjoy that side of it. And lots of admin stuff, you know, writing articles or uh, setting up festival appearances or, you know, travel arrangements for future festivals. I'm off to Iceland on the 15th of uh, November for Iceland Noir, which is a big uh, crime festival in Reykjavik. So that's exciting. And then um, next April, I'm going to Paris. And I'm sorry, I'm going completely off the point of my routine. So going back to my day, um, I, I do all of that admin. So then, you know, by... Oh, probably by six o'clock, I'm kind of done for the day. But if my husband is working um, late because he's a shift worker, he works in radio, funny enough, as a, a sound engineer. And so if he's working late, I will work late uh, in the armchair. I will write late. So what about you say that you do four hours of concentrated writing, yeah. probably a day. Talk me through the makeup of that. Uh, is it? Uh, is is there much editing while, while you're writing that's going into that? It's, Are you just ploughing through from the point that you left off to the yeah, wherever you can finish? It depends on what stage I'm at. I mean, I'm working on the first draft now, so I'm just going forward. And I have learned through, you know, the hard way not to go back because the first couple of novels I wrote, um, I constantly went backwards <coughs> and forwards. Uh, over the first, you know, 30,000 words and rewrote them and rewrote them and rewrote them. And you could actually just rewrite the first 30,000 words for the rest of your life. And it's it seems to be a common stumbling block, you know, talking to other writers. A lot of them say that the 30,000 word mark is a really tough one to get through. But I think what you have to do is keep going, keep going through it, work through it, keep going forward and not allow yourself to go back because everything that's wrong can get fixed in the second draft. You know, just keep going forward with the writing. How do you know when you're finished each day? Uh, well, it's either when I have reached a thousand words or I am starving to death because I don't stop for lunch. I don't allow myself to um, 
eat until I've done my word count. And my word count is generally a thousand words a day or coming up to a deadline, 2000 words a day. So I, I'm not allowed to eat. I don't allow myself to eat until I've, I've uh, reached that deadline. What do you allow yourself to do then? Are there any tricks, little intricacies, eccentricities that help you along the way to get your words out? Um, not Nothing specific. I mean, I know when I'm stuck, when I'm really stuck and I just, you know, I have to just put it down and walk away. And what I will do then, like I work in silence, I don't have music playing. But occasionally if I'm stuck, I'll put on, um, I have a really old... Uh, CD of um, movie soundtracks from European cinema of the 1970s and 80s and early 90s, I think. So I listened to soundtracks of Betty Blue and Jean Le Ferret and uh, Il Postino and all these European cinema classic films. And I find them brilliant because movie soundtracks are designed to provoke emotion. And that's what you need. You need that passion or you need that tragedy or despair which comes across in the music so well. Oh, the first novel was completely chaotic and it took me, you know, six years to write it because I had a full-time job at the time. So I was only writing really in, I got three weeks annual leave a year, which included Christmas. So really I was probably only writing for one one week of, of each year and, you know, for two or three years I didn't write at all because I had done that 30,000 words thing and I had rewritten that and rewritten that and rewritten that and refined it and then uh, finally you know probably four years after I started writing I moved on from the 30,000 words and little bits and pieces of experiences that I had along the way during those intervening years really helped you know I spent um, a week in a chateau in the south of France um, and that informed the writing of my first novel, Unraveling Oliver. It ended up in the book. I read an obituary of um, uh, a, a, a Nazi general, Maurice Papon, who died during the time that I was writing it. And so he ended up in the book in a little way. Um, so all these experiences I had, like none of that eight years were wasted because when I wasn't actually writing the book, I was thinking about it. And I think most of the writing happens when you're not actually writing. Like for this book, the one I'm writing at the moment, my fourth book, unnamed at the moment, uh, I have most of the plot in my head already. So I have it. I know exactly where it's going. That was not the case with my first, second and mostly my third book. I just made it up as I went along. But now I'm much more assured, I think. I'm much more confident in my ability to plot. So I don't have to fly by the seat of my pants so much. I think it's just uh, much easier to have a long goal in mind and to know your ending when you begin. So it's interesting because I'd imagine most of the writers who listen to the show mm. uh, they don't have the luxury of being a, a full-time writer you know sure. they still have to as you were uh, right at the start and yet you say you, you weren't uh, you, you were only writing pretty much for one week a year yeah I'd imagine a lot of the writers that listen to this uh, have to fit in their words sure. around their day job and, and you weren't doing that I wasn't really I mean I would, I would write the odd weekend as well and I kept making notes in my phone like I was constantly making notes on my phone, kind of going, oh, that'll be interesting. So that when I did get to write, uh, I mean, to say a week a year is, is an exaggeration. I'm sure it was more than that. I'm sure it was like 
like I would go away and write for one week a year to a, a writer's retreat, um, a place called the Tyrone Guthrie Centre in County Monaghan in Ireland. But um, uh, I would also write the odd weekend here and there or an occasional evening or whatever. Or, you know, if I was stuck doing a really boring task, um, I would kind of open the laptop and go back to this story. But um yeah, I think most people I know, or a lot of writers I know, particularly mothers, do it when the kids have gone to bed, you know, and um, they they make it work. But I think if there is a book in you, it will come out. It might take 10 years, it might take 20 years, but if it's in you, it will come out and you will find a way. So your first book took, what, six years to write, you were saying? Yeah, something but, like that. Um, it's published sells brilliantly um, mm. it wins you awards then you find that you've got to write a second one I know the, the, that was a shock <laughs> you're contracted in to write a second one what yeah. do you do at that point you've ploughed so much into your first book and now you've got a, and that would have come from an yeah. organic idea but I've, now you now I've, you've got to sit down and force one out I felt really lost then because I, I really thought I've used up all of my ideas like there's so much story and incident in Unraveling Oliver in the first book. I just kind of thought I'm never going to I'm never going to find enough story to fill another entire book. I'm never going to do that. But then I remember the story that uh, I, uh, I basically the inspiration for the second book was a man I met who told me that he thought his father might have murdered somebody in the 1960s. I, I, it was kind of a, it was a complicated story, but I just kind of thought, God, what would it be like? What would it be like to to wonder, had your father committed this murder, and never to know? Because his father died before anything could be done, or anything, any investigation could be carried out, and so nothing was resolved. But I kind of thought, wow, that must be an extraordinary thing to live with to, to wonder that for the rest of your life so that became the inspiration and once I had that young boy wondering had his father I, I, I changed the time I said in the 80s and I made him 17 rather than 23 which was the, the age of the guy I met why did you do that uh, just uh, because I didn't want to tell his story okay. I wanted to adapt it and change it and make it different and also because, you know, he had he had told me this when he was in his middle 50s. He had told me about this and that he had spent his whole life wondering. His father had died the year after this alleged incident might have happened. And he could never find out. He never found out whether it was true or not. And, you know, with the advance of the Internet, I did a bit of digging and I couldn't find out either. Let me take you to the, the, the third novel then. Yes. This is Skin Deep. It's been out a few months now. Talk to me about the first moment that the idea for that story came into your head. Well, it, it was inspired by a song, um, and A Lady of a Certain Age by the Divine Comedy. Uh, Neil Hannon wrote this amazing song about a woman who is on the Riviera, who used to be beautiful, who used to be rich, and is now... She, her beauty is fading, she has no money, she's relying on the kindness of strangers and she's telling stories to uh, young men in bars about her glory days. And I just thought, what a fascinating character. I would love to write this woman. And that's where, that's where Skin Deep began. So then what happened? 
Then what happened was um, in the song, she is very much born with a silver spoon in her mouth and she comes from a very privileged background. But I thought, wouldn't it be more interesting if she had had a, like a privileged part of her life, but that if she had climbed the social ladder and then fallen back down it. So I um, I I went back in her to the beginnings of her life and put her in dire poverty on an island off the west coast of Ireland, a small rural island community with a population of about 60 on a barren, windswept, beautiful, remote island. And then I brought her to her middle 50s where she's living on the Côte d'Azur, passing herself off as an English socialite, but not quite succeeding. I know you've said that for the, the book, your fourth novel, the one you're writing now, you know yes. a lot more about your story. Yeah. For the third, for for, um, for Skin Deep, it, how much did you know before you put pen to paper or fingers to laptop? Is it all character-based at this it's point? It's very much character-based, yeah. I always start with character. The characters lead me. Once I establish who they are, I let them lead me. And what had happened was... Um, uh, that song was very much in my head. I know I had always thought I was going to I'd been listening to that song for the guts of 10 years on and off. And I always I thought that Neil Hannon, the songwriter, would actually write a book about it. And uh, because there was so much story in the song and it was such a, a, a such a saga in the song. And I thought like, one day he'll write it. But he didn't. And I just kind of thought, you know, what, I'm going to bloody write it. And I did get to meet him and talk to him about it. And he was perfectly OK with me writing it. And he said he doesn't have a book in him. He will never write a book because it takes up too much energy. He said he's a short term, short uh, song. He's a three minute writer. man. Yes, exactly. But he creates such amazing worlds in those three minutes. But while uh, while I uh, was playing around with that song and introducing that character in my head, I had also been asked to pitch a, a new TV series for a television production company. So I had uh, thought to do a sort of a modern King Lear-esque story set on a remote Irish island in modern times. And um, the more research I did into islands and rural islands, uh, I found them really fascinating. Like the danger of an island, the beauty of an island. They're so remote, they're kind of cut off. You can be cut off for weeks on those islands if the weather is bad. But they're very stunningly beautiful. And they're very... um, uh, dangerous. There's cliff edges and, you know, goats go flying off cliffs and storms and, you know, children have to be kept indoors because it gets so wild. And and when I uh, came to write the book, and it was only when I was finished writing the book, I realised that I had written a character who came from an island who actually personified the island. That Cordelia, the central character in the book, was all of those things. She was wild and dangerous and remote and stunningly beautiful. And that was such an unconscious thing. But it it um, it became apparent only after I had finished writing the book. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We've got more from Liz Nugent in just a sec. And before we get into today's top writing tip, I want to give you a quick nudge towards the iTunes podcast store, if that's how you are listening to the show. If you're enjoying it as well, if you want to help us out, the best thing that you can do right now is to leave us a review. So find Writer's Routine on iTunes and and leave us some words, some kind words if you can. Maybe in the review you can tell us what you've enjoyed, uh, the guests that have left a mark on you, a top piece of advice that you've heard, something that's helped you out with your story, tips for guests maybe that you want me to chat to. Uh, If you can, five stars would be amazing as well. Also write your name so then I can say hello to you in the next few episodes. It's so easy and it helps us out so much. Just leave a review uh, for Writer's Routine over on the iTunes podcast store. And remember, you can also get in touch with us uh, to let us know what you're thinking through a whole host of different ways. Uh, We're on Twitter, we're on Instagram as well for daily updates and motivational quotes and and bits of advice for how you work. Uh, Find us at WritersPod on Twitter, WritersRoutine on Instagram, and you can send a message to us through the website WritersRoutine.com. So every week on the show, we like to get a little piece of advice from another author, a guest we've spoken to in the past, a a confirmed friend of the pod now. This week, it comes from Ben Schott, he of Schott's Almanac and miscellany fame. He's just published his debut novel. It's an homage to P.G. Woodhouse. It's called Jeeves and the King of Clubs, and it is truly remarkable. You see, I'm a huge Woodhouse fan. And I've seen a lot of people try to ape the great man's work and, and mostly fail. But Ben's story it doesn't do that it kind of runs parallel to it and it makes you remember how amazing Woodhouse was and that's a massive compliment to Ben as well anything to make you remember just how much you love stories is always a brilliant thing and Ben is here today with a tip all about why your mouth can help your fingers hi I'm Ben Schott and the author of Jeeves and the King of Clubs an authorized homage to PG Woodhouse my writing tip is disarmingly simple which is read everything you write out loud. You need not declaim it from a balcony, although I always do. You can mutter it under your breath, but reading out loud will change everything about how you write. Kind of a dead simple tip, really. Just read aloud what you've written. Um, Listen to it in real life so it's just not rattling around in your head and going down through your fingers. Uh, You can find out loads more about Ben's work in his brand new book, Jeeves and the King of Clubs. It's over at writersroutine.com. 
Let's get back to it then with Liz Nugent talking about her brand new novel, Skin Deep. It's the tale of the alluring and alarming Cordelia Russell. So we've spoken about how writing her second book uh, was so much harder than the first, how she has to make time to write, how she did that right at the start when she was holding down a proper job and how she's designing a new office from the ground up to spec to help her writing day. Uh, The second half is more about the new novel and we pick things up with characters. She said that she completely needed to understand Cordelia before she started working. But what about the other characters that she's going to write? Each of the people she destroys, and she destroys most people she meets in her life, they all get a chapter of their own um, where they explain their side of the story and and how how they were attracted to her, like a moth to a flame. They, they are all incredibly attracted to her. They all find her either beautiful or fascinating or both, like the island. Um, so... Um, they all get their say in a way. But I also gave them all interesting backstories of their own. Like they're not just ciphers for her. They are fully rounded characters. Did that come through in their own way? Did that come through brainstorming? Did you sit down and think, right, and I, I, I need a backstory for this character. What's going to happen? Uh, not necessarily. No, I mean, they they just came organically. Can I say that? Uh, yeah, they just um once I once I had written them from Cordelia's point of view, because Cordelia is so self-serving and so selfish that she would never consider who these who these people are on the inside. She just thinks about them and what they can do for her. But I needed to know from their point of view what they felt, what they felt about her, what they felt about themselves how much self-respect they had and whether they considered after their brushes with Cordelia whether it had all been worth it or whether she had destroyed them. <laughs> I know you said that you liked to, well, that you did anyway for the first three books, Fly by the Seat of Your Pants. Mm. Um, how much did you, aside from everything about Cordelia, how much did you know about the actual plot for Skin Deep before you sat down and started writing? The beginning, the middle, the end? Not much, not much. I didn't, I didn't know. Well, I knew, I knew the beginning because the beginning was taken pretty much from the song, only I threw a corpse into that opening. Um, You're a crime I, writer, that's yes, what happens. <laughs> but I didn't know who the corpse was until I was probably 80% of the way through the book because I I knew, um, I thought it's going to be one of four people. There is one of four people who could be this corpse. Um, and Delia doesn't say who it is in the opening chapter. She just refers to to him as the monstrous corpse in my flat. So I I um I played around and I was just kind of thinking, okay, it could be this person or this person and that kind of I, I kept thinking, oh no, that's too obvious if it's him and it's too obvious if it's him. And I knew it was a man and it was only at the last minute that it struck me that it could be somebody else entirely. So yeah. I like to surprise myself, you see. And I figure if I surprise myself, I can surprise the reader. Talk to me about that moment then, when, when it finally became clear who the body was going to be. Uh, it, it, was, it was kind of, it was a risky thing to do because, um, oh, it's hard to say anything without spoiling it, but it was, a, it, it was quite a risk because the readers wouldn't necessarily have been 
too familiar with this character. Right. So he kind of came out of left field a little bit. But there are, I did plant certain clues in the book um, as to who he might be. Well, let me, <laughs> to, to, to stop you treading so carefully. Okay. Um, let's talk about the, 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 uh, the clues that you planted then. Mm. You figured out who the corpse is going to be, but yes. you've only figured that out. 80%. At, at, yeah, yeah, as you type their name. Do you then have to go back, retroactively yes. put in the clues? How did you go about that? Uh, I went back to certain points where uh, this character might have been referenced. Um, in, a, in a general way, he was always referenced within a grouping of other people. Mm-hmm. So I went back and uh, looked at every point where he could be referenced and made a little... Uh, highlighted this character a little more, um, foreshadowed, foregrounded mm-hmm. him a little more. And there is a particular point when uh, Delia goes back to the island pregnant at age 18 where there is a distinct clue. Oh. <laughs> uh, let me ask you then about, just a bit more about the plotting. Okay. Uh, so many times on this show when I've chatted to authors, they've spoken about their plot and their plan of their plot, like a bit of a roadmap. Yes. Um, so they know where they're starting. Quite often they know where they want to go. Mm. On the roadmap of your story, at what point did things become clear through the windscreen of what was happening next? Probably only, uh, probably about 75% of the way through. Like I, I always start with a character in an extreme situation and how the character reacts to that situation dictates who they are. So immediately the reader knows who they're dealing with. Delia wakes up with a corpse in her flat in in chapter one. And it's not a spoiler to say she then goes out to a party, takes a load of cocaine, tries to catch money off strangers, fails and comes back to the body in the flat. That's chapter one. Um, that sets up who she is. And then I go back in time to see all of the incidences and everything that led up to this point in her life from her early childhood. Why did she end up this way? Who is she? Who is the corpse? So I've, I've planted so many questions in that first chapter and then I take my time to answer them all. Well, I've raised the questions. So then I go back to the beginning of her life and I tell, tell the story chronologically of how we got to that point. And then when I get to the point in the book where she has the corpse in her flat again, which is about 75, 80% of the way through, then I pay out the consequences. And that's only, and it's at 75% of the point yeah. where you know what the consequences are. Exactly, yeah. Right. How much do you think about language, the words that are on the page? Um, it's, it was pretty important because I'm, I'm in, in, particularly in Skin Deep, because I move a lot from rural Ireland and colloquial language to Upper Crust London uh, in the 80s, um, yuppie time. And then I moved to the south of France to kind of low society and then to high society in Monaco and then back to the island. So the book moves. So the language was pretty important and Delia being the chameleon that she is adapts and adopts each um, society that she moves through. She is quite the, uh, even there are clues about her in school that she mimics people who, when 
when she's in school in the 80s and everybody's watching Brideshead Revisited, she impersonates all the characters to the amusement of her school friends. So early on, I've established that she is an excellent mimic and she does this through her life. She pretends to be something that she's not for most of her life. With the Brideshead Revisited thing, did mm. you know that she was going to do that until you find yourself typing it away? Uh, I know it was it was uh, to do with the name Cordelia Delia. Her name was Delia. She changes her name at one stage to Cordelia because she thinks it sounds posher because she's watched Brideshead Revisited and the youngest sister in Brideshead Revisited is Cordelia. And it also suited very much her character and the fact that she loved her father the most, because in King Lear, Cordelia is the youngest daughter who loves her father the most. But I, in in the case of Cordelia in this book, the love that she has for her father and that he has for her is not incestuous in any way, but it's very warped and very obsessive and very odd. I've had quite a lot of crime and, and thriller authors on the show. Mm-hmm. Quite often they're, they're debut writers. Why do you think it as a genre attracts first time novelists more than others? I think it's I think it's an exciting time to be a crime writer, particularly now when the world is in such a state of chaos, really. You know, you look at the rise of the extreme right in America, here in Britain as well, um, and in a lot of countries in Europe, and it's quite frightening. It's a frightening time to be alive. I remember in the 80s being very frightened all the time because of the threat of nuclear war and often going to bed wondering would I wake up. You know, that fe- that fear was very real. And I, I worry about children now having those same fears. Worry about adults now having those same fears. I worry about madmen potentially in the White House or in North Korea pressing red buttons. You know, it's a frightening time. So I think people are turning to crime in order to solve problems, to create order out of chaos, because ultimately in most crime novels, the bad guy gets caught or the bad woman gets caught or they get their comeuppance. Justice prevails. And I think um, when in society justice doesn't prevail, I think we look to literature for justice to win out. So that is it for this week's Writer's Routine. Thank you so much to Liz for a, a fantastic, deep, thoughtful chat. Such a pleasure to talk to. Uh, you can get links to all of her work right now at writersroutine.com. While you're on there, you can send us a message to let us know what you think of the show. If you've got uh, any words that might help us out, if there's anything that you want to write in, do it there. Also, you can give us a follow on Twitter and Instagram. And please, if you support the show, leave us a review over on the iTunes podcast store. And remember, we've teamed up with the Writer's Block Virtual Book Festival to give you the chance to win $2,000 worth of book marketing prizes. You'll get a book trailer for your story made, you'll get help from editors, you'll get reviews from book YouTubers, you'll get an interview with me on this very show telling us how you wrote and sat down and worked on your story. To find out more about that, search for The Novelette on Twitter. That's The Novelette on Twitter. She'll give you all the details that you need. And also, for the last time, the deal ends in December. I can do no more for you.
I've said it enough. Head to literatureandlatte.com to get 20% off Scrivener. I honestly think it's the best writing software out there. I've been so thankful for them for supporting the show over November. Uh, I promise it'll make your working day so much easier. Just use the code ROUTINE for 20% off Scrivener. So you'll get it for around about 30 quid. What's 30 quid now? It's It's a night out for two at the cinema. It's hardly anything to make you telling your story easier. You can get Scrivener uh, over at literatureandlatte.com. Use the code ROUTINE. Now, we're back next week with Tim Marshall, the author of Prisoners of Geography. It's sold around one million copies. It's kind of taken over the country, which is kind of what the story's about, really. So that'll be a very deep chat because it's non-fiction. And usually we're immersed in in the world of made-up stories. So I'm looking forward to that. I'll see you then with Tim Marshall next week on Writer's Routine. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.